So a nine-year-old little boy was playing with gasoline in the garage. Mom and dad were gone. And um, of course, you know what happens. The can blows up. He, he blows up the garage, burns down the house, and a hundred percent of his body is burned. One hundred percent. He had zero probability of living. And so while he's in the hospital, um, he's getting skin grafts. And so here's a story. I'm going to tell you a couple stories about him today. He did live, but at this point, he has zero probability of living. He said, got an aw- he's nine. This is in 1987. Got an awesome gift today, and I needed it. Two weeks ago, the doctors performed skin grafts on my back. Since then, I've been stuck lying on my, um, on my stomach because I couldn't put pressure on my back. Fourteen days, looking down through a hole, they cut in the bed. Fourteen days of staring at the same gray tile. Then he came in. I'm a huge hockey fan, and Gino Cavallini is a hockey player with the St. Louis Blues. He's been visiting me for about a month. He's really cool. Today he walked in, got down on his knees, looked up through the hole they cut in the mattress, and he smiled at me. How you doing, superstar? I was in pain, tied to a bed, staring through a hole, barely able to speak. It's been like this for a couple weeks. So I said, awesome. (laughs) But I think you could tell I didn't mean it. Superstar, in tonight's game, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to score a goal for you. Now, I love hockey. I follow all the Blues games, and I know a lot about Gino. He's more of a tough guy than he is a goal scorer. And I didn't want him to be disappointed, disappoint me or himself. So I looked at him back through the hole, looked into his eyes, and I said, Gino, do us both a favor. Get into a fight instead. (laughs) For some reason, he laughed, and Gino looked up at me. He was still kneeling on the floor. He kept smiling and said, all right, superstar, you got it. In tonight's game, if I can't score a goal, I promise I'll get into a fight. We talked a little bit longer. Then he left to get ready for the game. And that night, mom and dad sat next to each other at the head of the bed. We listened to the hockey game. Instead of staring at the floor, I just shut my eyes and I imagined I was at the game. On the radio, hockey is a little like listening to an auctioneer. It's fast-paced, it's exciting, but you always aren't sure what the heck is going on. But then it happened. Near the end of the first period, with the score tied one-to-one, my friend Gino Cavallini kept his promise. He actually did it. There was a massive brawl near center ice. (laughs) Gino dropped his gloves. He was in a fight. And I grinned from ear to ear, thinking about him tangled up with one of those bad guys taking care of business for me. I knew he could do it. For a while, I floated in the bed, couldn't believe he actually did it. Wow, wait till my buddies hear about this. Gino got into a fight for me. Gino went to the penalty box for fighting, but the game continued, and we kept listening. Near the end of the game, Gino gave, up another, Gino gave me another gift. The score was tied 2-2. Two to two. Time was running out. Then I heard the announcer start yelling with excitement. A loud foghorn shrieked over the, his voice. The blast, the horn, whatever we score. The announcer barked out that the Blues had just pulled ahead 3-2. to two. The go-ahead goal was scored by Gino Cavallini. Now, teams always celebrate after a goal. The announcer said there were high fives, hugs, and tears. This is kind of weird for a hockey game. Anyway, I knew Gino didn't score a lot, but I couldn't figure out why he and all the other players could be so excited uh, to cry about it. Mom said something about being overwhelmed with joy. 
something about the goal being much bigger than just a hockey game, something about a goal shared by the entire team that night, a goal that would keep me fighting to keep me alive. I didn't know all about that. I was nine years old. I was just glad he got into a fight. <laughs> when the game ended, I settled in to go to sleep. Now, hours later, I heard a ruckus in the hallway. Hockey players love to celebrate victories, and they usually celebrate at bars, but not tonight. Gino, his St. Louis teammates, they all came together to celebrate their victory. They picked up a couple dozen pizzas. They grabbed a bunch of soda. They made their way to the hospital parking lot. and They took the elevator to the fourth floor, and they came to the burn center to party. Mom came in, got down on her knees, and gently tapped me on the shoulder to wake me up. She said, there are some guys here from the game who want to see you. And Gino walked in. His arms were full. He had a plate of pizza, a big cup of soda, the stick he'd scored the winning game with. And that night, we partied. We partied until 2 a.m. <laughs> the nurses eventually kicked Gino and all the teammates out of my room. Before he left, Gino got down on his knees. He looked up through the hole in the bed. He smiled and said, how you doing now, superstar? I looked at my friend. I smiled, and I responded, awesome. That hockey story is a lot like the story of Easter. There was a fight for you. There was a massive brawl for your redemption. There was a victory shot that allowed you to be grafted in. And there was a celebration and a victory that we've now had for over 2,000 years. And we still celebrate that with hugs, with high fives, and sometimes tears of sheer joy and, and amazement at what our Savior has done for us. And everybody in the stories has a destiny. The whole Easter story, every character in the Easter story had a destiny. But Gino Cavallini in the hockey story had a destiny too, trying to give this little boy a spark to somehow keep him alive. And the mom and dad had a destiny to try to, to forecast a future for this, this little boy. And John O'Leary, the nine-year-old boy, he's now about 41, 42 years of age, and he's now teaching and leading all over the world. He speaks to over 100,000 different business leaders and businessmen and businesswomen all over our country. It's a phenomenal story. And the best part of the story is, no pun intended, he is on fire for Jesus Christ. And so this is a story that you've got to kind of figure out. Because the whole Easter story, it's a story that you've got to work through in your mind. Did it happen? Did it not happen? Because if it didn't happen you're wasting your time. If it did happen, it changes everything. And so how do you make a decision about this? You know, Christianity, it hangs in the balance on an event. Christianity is not about just the teachings of Jesus, though they were great teachings. Christianity doesn't hang in the balance on the supernatural miracles, though they were fantastic. Christianity hangs in the balance on an event. He did or he did not rise from the dead. And everybody in the room has to kind of figure that out because you have a destiny. Now, if you don't think that Jesus is real, and he is real, your destiny is temporary. Your destiny is 70 or 80 years. If he is real and you believe him 
and you've accepted him, then your destiny is for eternal purposes. And so again, you've got to figure this story out. Did he or did he not rise from the dead? We were getting some pizzas on Friday night, and and we had a whole bunch of people over, and um, I needed about 10 10 pizzas. So I go to this local pizza place, and it's packed. There's all kind of people behind the counter fixing pizzas. There's all kind of people behind me. It's like a bunch of beehives. It's just it's happening. And so this 27, 28-year-old girl working the counter, I leaned over to her and I said, I need 10 pizzas. My wife's going to want creativity. Can we get like 10 different pizzas? Can you help me? She said, sure. So the, one of the cooks hears all this. And he says, no meat, no meat. I said, Wait, oh, you're out of meat. Oh, no. She said, no, honey. She said, no. It's, 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 he's religious. He, it's, it's Good Friday. He's religious. I said, oh, okay. She said, I'll take care of you. How much meat do you want? <laughs> and so I, I, and, and I said, so um, it's okay? She said, yeah. She, she said, I, I'm not very religious. Are you? <laughs> I'm in a T-shirt, flip-flops, shorts, you know, and she has no idea what I do. And I said, well, not really. I, if, I mean, if you really knew me, I said, not really. I said, I, but I do believe in the Easter story. And I said, I, I do believe in Jesus. I said, the story is real. And it wasn't time to go into the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The place was packed, okay? But, but it's a story that you've got to kind of think through. And if it didn't happen, why would they write such a crazy story? I mean, if you were fabricating a faith, you would never write this story the way they wrote the story. If you were pitching a, a religion that wasn't real, you would never start with the woman, Mary. In that culture, women could not testify in a court of law. You would never start with a crazy woman. She's a woman that had seven demons that was cast out of her. And Peter's like your guy, right? Peter's your guy. You would never have Peter deny he even knew who Jesus was. And you would never have all these guys clueless once Jesus rose from the dead because they were not expecting a resurrection. I love how these authors write the story. About two years ago, I was doing a wedding at down South St. Pete. It's a beautiful venue. It was at night. And it was a large wedding, and I love weddings. Weddings are fun. It's a celebratory event. So I I pick up the packet, you know, and there are a couple from our church I don't know real well. But in the packet it said, make sure that you honor the grandparents. There were three grandparents. One was John, one was Alice, and one was um, Samantha. And I said, I got this. I got this. So I didn't read that they were dead. I missed that little detail somehow. And so I got the wedding going, and I'm having a great time, and I had opening prayer and scripture, and I said, you know, we are here today, and, and you're here today, and we want to honor, you know, your grandparents, John and, and Alice and Samantha. In fact, let's just, let's have them stand up. Let's give them a round of applause. Give them a round of applause. And I, the groomsmen are in the way, and it's dark, and I'm trying to look around the groomsmen, and I can't, I can, and it's crickets. It's completely crickets in the room. Nobody's breathing. I thought, what just happened here? And the little bitty bride, you know, she's about five foot two. She leans right into my microphone. And she goes, they're dead. <laughs> and all I could think of was, well, that would take a resurrection, wouldn't it? I didn't know what else to say. I was so embarrassed. I didn't even tell Denise that story for a month. I waited a month to tell my wife that story. I really did. True story. Messed that one up greatly. Now, the cool part about that story is they thought it was funny. 
thank goodness, the bride did. And she said, my grandparents, you know, are at least in heaven. I thought, good, if they're in hell, I'm really in trouble with, with this story. But it's a story that you've got to think through. Why, why, why did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write the way they wrote? If you were fabricating a religion, you would never have all these people be in such disbelief. And so it starts with a heavy-hearted woman coming to the tomb. It's a great story. John chapter 20. On, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene. This is the woman with seven demons. Would you start your whole foundational story with her? Well, you would if it really happened. That's why you would start with her. She went to the tomb, and she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running. Now, I want you to circle the word running because I want to talk to you about your destiny, and I want to encourage you not to crawl, not to meander, not to stroll, but I want to encourage you to run to your destiny. She was running to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one Jesus loved. This would be John. And she said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple, they started for the tomb. I want you to notice that they're running. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. Now, you're going to run in life. You may run away from your values. You may run away from what you should be doing. You may run away from your faith. You may run away from all kinds of things. Or you're going to run toward the things that matter. You're going to run toward the destiny that God has called. Everybody's running in our culture. You're going to run away or you're going to run to your incredible destiny. And that's why the Apostle Paul said this. The Apostle Paul said, I didn't run or labor in vain. I don't want to run or labor in vain. All right, back to our story. He bent over, looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came behind him and went straight to the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other two disciples who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Now look at this. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. I love this. This adds credibility to me. When I'm talking to people at Starbucks or out in the community or wherever, And they'll ask me, do you really think the story happened? Yes, I do. I have no other plausible explanation. There's no other reason why Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John would have started with Mary or the women. There's no other reason if it really didn't happen. Those are like the worst people that you would start with, the crazy woman who had seven demons. And Peter, Peter's your guy. How many of you are Catholic in the room? How many have a Catholic background in the room? Do your parents know that you're here? Peter's your guy. And Peter's denying three times he even knows who Jesus is. And even though they see the empty tomb, and I've been to this tomb, I've been there, it's great, it's awesome, even though they still don't understand from Scripture. Folks, they didn't think it was going to happen. They are shell-shocked when they see the resurrected Jesus. Nobody's outside the tomb that morning with a choir and a band and a countdown, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, boom, blast off. The stone rolls away. Here comes you. Nobody's standing outside there singing Chris Tomlin songs. They're not doing it. Why? Because he's dead. Or was he? Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. 
Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look inside the tomb. And she saw two angels in white. And they are seated where Jesus' body had been. It's a huge grave, by the way. One at the head and the other at the foot. And they ask her, woman, why are you crying? Well, they've taken my Lord away. She doesn't say he's alive. He's dead in her mind. She's convinced he's dead. They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? She doesn't even recognize her Savior. (laughs) And she thinks he's the hedge clipper. She thinks he's the gardener. This is a hilarious story. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And when Jesus called her name, she felt just like you feel when you first heard Jesus call your name. When Jesus called you, you felt it. You knew that you knew that you knew that he was real. You couldn't, you couldn't explain everything. You couldn't put your finger on everything. But you knew he had called your name. And he would be your savior too. Well, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I think she's running. doesn't say so, but I think she's running. I have seen the Lord, she said, and she told them that he had said all these amazing things to her. Now, you have a destiny, and your destiny is so important for you to figure out and so important for you to be able to live. And some of you go, I don't know that I can do it because, you know, I didn't start off well. I don't know that I can do it. I strayed. I don't know that I can do my destiny because I left my faith. But your destiny will automatically distance you from your history. Maybe you started slow. Maybe you started poorly. But the more you live within your destiny, you will fulfill the great things that God has in store for you. So what's your destiny? Well, what did he make you good at? Are you good with people? Are you good with numbers? Are you good at making money? Are you good at leadership? Are you good at administration? Are you good with art? Are you good with music? Are you good with kids? Are you good with teaching? Some of you are like so good with people. And you can like just cry and listen to somebody for like 45 minutes. I can do that for about 45 seconds. But you're good at it. And you love it. And you adore it. Are you good with babies? (laughs) Are you good with older people? Are you good with children? What's your destiny? How's he wired you? How's he created you? I see some of you, the baby crying bothers. Others in the room, it doesn't bother at all. Those of you that it doesn't bother, go work in the nursery. You're good at this. What's your destiny? How has God wired you? What are you wired to do? You find your destiny and you run. You don't walk. You don't crawl, you don't meander, you don't stroll, you run. You run to your destiny. God will do great and amazing things in your life. Well, I want to tell you a little bit more about this little boy. So the little boy is nine years old, burned 100% on his body, struggling, just struggling to live. There's a guy named Jack Buck. Now, you've heard of Joe Buck, and Joe Buck's a sports announcer, and Joe Buck does World Series and lots of things, but his daddy was Jack Buck. And Jack Buck was the announcer for the St. Louis Cardinals for 47 years. And Jack Buck was an amazing announcer. He's at a charity dinner, sitting next to a friend. And he said to his friend, what's new? 
And his friend said, well, my daughter's got a neighbor whose little boy got burned up, played with gasoline, blew up the garage, burned down the house, and we're not sure the kid's going to live. And Jack Buck, it bothered him. And Jack Buck said, where is he? He's at the burn unit, fourth floor, downtown hospital. Jack Buck, the next day, goes and visits this little boy. And he sees this little boy, says hi to him and all that. He has to go out of the room. He breaks down, and he's bawling at the nurse's station. And the nurses give him Kleenex and some water, kind of clean him up a little bit. He goes back in the room and he says, Kid, when you get out of here, we're going to have John O'Leary Day at Bush Stadium. Cardinal Stadium, Bush Stadium, we're going to have John O'Leary Day. Kid, you get out of this hospital and we're going to have a great day. Six months later, he gets out of the hospital. And sure enough, Jack Buck has John O'Leary Day at Bush Stadium. And this little boy is up in the sound booth with Jack Buck calling the game. Incredible story. So as they're leaving, Jack Buck says to the mother, what more can I do? What, what more can I do? I, I want to help. What, what, what else can I do? And she said, well, she said he, he, hasn't, he hasn't written because he got his fingers all amputated. He got all his fingers amputated, and they're just down to the knuckles. And she said, we're scared to death. He'll never learn to write again. Jack said, okay, I, I don't know what to do, but I'll, we'll figure it out. Three days later, the little boy gets a baseball signed by Ozzie Smith in the mail, and it's from Jack Buck. And Jack Buck had a little note that said, kid, if you want a second baseball, all you got to do is write a thank you note. Well, that night, he gets his mama, pencil, paper, and they go at it. It took hours, hours to write one thank you note. Four or five days later, he gets a second baseball in the mail. Kid, if you want a third baseball, all you got to do is write a thank you note. He writes a thank you note. Gets a fourth baseball. Kid, if you want a fourth baseball, all you got to do is write a thank you note. The St. Louis Cardinals and Jack Buck signed and delivered 60 baseballs to John O'Lear during that summer. 60 baseballs. Incredible story. Well, fast forward now to when John is going to graduate from college. This is John. This is Jack Buck. John wasn't really doing well. He'd gone back into society, finished high school. This is actually his college graduation. And in college, he's drinking, he's partying, he's distracted. And Jack Buck basically gets into his face and says, Kid, I don't know if he knew his name or not, but he always called him Kid. He said, Kid, this is my Hall of Fame baseball. It was cut glass. This is my Hall of Fame baseball. I'm giving it to you. It's my most prized possession. I'm expecting you to do something great with your life. That was the turning point. At that moment, he starts going back to church. He starts reading the scriptures. He starts reading, uh, praying. He starts then having a witness for Christ. At that moment, at 22 years of age, with that experience, his life really started to turn around. Well, fast forward that now to 2011. 2011, there were a whole bunch of tornadoes that went through our country. I don't expect everybody to remember this, but from Texas to New York, we had over 300 and some tornadoes in a four-day stretch, and hundreds of people died. The state of Alabama was hit the hardest. The state of Alabama suffered the greatest. And in those four days, Alabama lost 285 people. And it was just an electrical nightmare. And the Alabama Power Company hired John O'Lear. 
John Leary. And, and they hired John Leary to come and to speak to their business units. And over 30 different business units for that summer, John was speaking to and just teaching them. So it's like the last weekend, and they have this banquet, and John's the guest of honor. And so like this guy, Keith, who's the president, Keith then says to John, hey, I want to give you some flowers. He gives him a dozen roses. And John's going, I'm a guy. You know, give me a golf club. I mean, got a dozen roses, you know. He said he didn't get it. And he said, and then the man, Keith, said, now, be a good son and give those to your mother. And out behind a curtain, the Alabama Power Company had flown in his mom, flown in his dad, and his dad's had Parkinson's in a wheelchair, and they wheeled him up. And, and so John walks over then to them. And again, this man, Keith, said, now, 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 John, you walked over to your mom, and you're always telling the story of how you learned to walk again. What was the name of that nurse? Nurse Roy. Yeah, what would Nurse Roy say to you? And Nurse Roy would come into his hospital room and pick him up. And John couldn't walk. Knees locked, hips locked, ankles don't work. And this great big nurse would pick him up and say, boy, you're going to walk again and I'll walk with you. Every morning, boy, you're going to, and his feet are just dragging the the tile on the hospital floor. He couldn't move anything. They did this for months and months. Boy, you're going to walk again, and I'm going to walk with you. And John's telling that story of how Nurse Roy, he'd lost contact with Nurse Roy, hadn't seen him in like 24, 25 years. And then and this guy, Keith, said, well, now, is that how he said it? He said, I think he said it like this. And then a microphone was clicked on, and this big, booming voice said, boy, I told you you were going to walk again, and I'm proud to walk with you. At that moment, Nurse Roy comes out from behind a curtain, and he said he looks like Apollo Creed, and he hadn't changed a bit in 24 years. And he said, the last time I saw Nurse Roy, I was tied to a bed with a morphine drip, getting nutrition through a feeding tube. And so Nurse Roy and I spent some time together, and we talked, and we chatted, and Nurse Roy said, John, I want to tell you something. I, I, I'm, I'm shocked that you've made something out of your life. And John said, well, thanks a lot. And he said, you know... My high school and college professors had kind of the same sentiment. He said, no, that's not, that's not, that's not what I mean. I'm shocked because burn victims, if they survive, they rarely ever go back into society. They, they barely can reenter into society. And you're teaching business leaders and businessmen and women all over the world. He said, I'm also shocked that you married such a beautiful woman. He's got a wife and four, four kids. He said, but I want to tell you what really surprises me the most. And this is what um, Nurse Roy said. I want to to read you just one paragraph. Nurse Roy said, he took a sip of water. He looked into my eyes. He took a long pause. And then he said, let me tell you what shocks me the most. It is to learn that after 24 years, I mattered. I had no idea. I, I mattered. I did my job. I loved my work. I love my patients, but I never really understood until today that I mattered. And that's exactly how your heavenly Father feels toward you. You matter so much to Him. I love communion this morning and how that story was with the prodigal son. The prodigal son ran away, ran away from his values, ran away from his faith, ran away from his family. But I love the story of the father. Because while the boy was a long way off, the father saw him and was what? Filled with compassion. And the Bible says then that the father, he ran. 
he ran to the boy and he put his arms around him and he hugged him and embraced him. That's how your heavenly father feels toward you. Your heavenly father's crazy about you. You've made some mistakes. Maybe you've ran the wrong direction. Maybe you ran with the wrong crowd. Maybe you ran to the wrong people. Maybe you ran to the wrong places. But you matter. And your heavenly father is crazy about you. So I want to encourage you to run. Don't don't crawl. Don't meander. Don't stroll. Run. Run to your destiny. What are you good at? If you're married, if you're married, you have a destiny that together you will make a better product as a couple. If you're raising boys, your destiny is to raise godly men. If you've got girls, your destiny is to raise godly young women. If you're single or married or single again, your destiny is to live within the will of God and find the things that God's called you to do and run. What more can I do? What more can I do? What more can I do, Jack Jack Buck asked. It's a great question. And when you live within your destiny, you find your passion, you find your will. So we run to Christ. We run to truth. We run to righteousness. We run to the light. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are safe. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to what? Get the prize. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything. Run away. Run away from that which is entangling you and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. So that we can say this, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Run. Run. Why, why walk? Why stroll? Why meander? Why not run? Run to your passion. Run for your destiny. Run to what God has called you to do. Run, run, run. And everybody wins. And everybody is in the story of this amazing destiny. If if you've never given your life to Jesus, I encourage that so strongly. I encourage you today to say, I'm going to trust Jesus to forgive me of my sins I'm going to trust Jesus to be my Savior, to be my Lord. And I'm going to trust Jesus to give me a destiny that's eternal. Maybe you like special prayer for something else today. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come down front at this time. I'm going to ask you to stand with me at this moment. And if you would, if you've never given your life to Christ, I want to encourage you today to come down front and give your life to Jesus. Maybe there's special prayer for your destiny or for help or to run away from something that you shouldn't be running toward anyway. Come down front and get prayed for, prayed over, and get prayed up. Max Lucado says this story is too good to be true, but he also says it's too great to pass up. I love that. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we worship you today.
we celebrate the greatest event, the greatest victory of all times, the resurrection from the dead. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you.